Welcome to the Safety with Purpose Women in Safety podcast. This is a show that provides a supportive space for women in safety careers. We break down the barriers and provide opportunities for growth. Make sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and join us at safetywithpurpose.com. Now, here's your Women in Safety podcast host, Tamara Paris. Welcome back, listeners. It's Tamara Paris, and I'm here with Pedro Marcellus again of the X Factor of Safety, and we're doing a mashup. We're going to talk about COVID-19. We've got community members Leanne and Stephen here with us today. So let's just jump right into the discussion. Uh, we've heard a lot of different names for this um, virus that's been going around, and people are really not sure what to be doing, and we're seeing a lot of posts on LinkedIn about people putting bags over their heads and, and doing different things. And really what this is telling us as safety professionals are people are scared, people don't know what to do, and people are calling on us as the safety professionals for help. So today, Pedro and I wanted to do another mashup of our podcast and get some information out to people. So Pedro, take it away. Hi, I'm Pedro Maciel, host of the X Factor of Safety podcast. Um, again, this is new to us, just, you know, Saturday morning coffee, um, talking about something that's really uh, affecting, you know, more than just one place on a, on a global scale. Uh, so talking about the, the COVID-19, uh, we're going to dive into uh, a couple of facts on the, um, the actual COVID-19 coronavirus, as it's called. Um, you know, obviously it's an infectious disease that's caused, uh, by infected humans. Again, it came from China, originated in China. Um, you know, the, the various ways of getting it just like a bloodborne pathogen is, you know, through the eyes, nose, mouth, you know, your saliva glands, um, you know, some of the symptoms that come along with it is, you know, a, a severe cough and fever. Uh, you'll end up feeling like you have the flu. So when you start to feel like that, and you might need to go get checked. And Pedro, we have some guests from the community with us today, Leanne and Steven. Uh, why don't we give them an opportunity to just uh, introduce themselves a bit? Leanne, why don't you kick that off? Okay. Well, I am a safety consultant. I work with clients uh, across the United States. I have some clients in the Middle East and healthcare. And I've been working in this field 17 years. Um, in 2009, when H1N1 was prevalent, I worked with businesses at that time on business continuity plans, and we started incorporating pandemic plans. Um, that H1N1 was not prevalent, obviously, in the workforce because it primarily impacted children. But it was a good tester for me as a professional to learn and to start evaluating workplace environment. Um, COVID-19, which also has another name, it is the, there's a disease and a virus. So COVID-19 is actually uh, the virus that causes it. And people see this name too. And Pedro also had said there's several names for it. It's true. Um, the name that often people see is SARS-CoV-2. And that name came from the ITCV or ICTV, the International Committee of Taxonomy on Viruses. And they named the virus, and then WHO named the actual disease that causes it. Um, 
And I have been tracking this as I'm always curious about these sorts of things since it started the outbreak in um, in China. But it's it's prevalent, obviously, there, and it's coming across the United States. But I've worked with businesses for some time, the number of preparedness uh, procedures, disaster planning, uh, OSHA compliance, risk evaluation, those sorts of things. And so this has been kind of on my radar. Um, and all the way back from 2009, I've been monitoring workplaces because that was that was a good tester. Again, it didn't impact workforces, but I believe this one will. So there's my little background on why I'm here. And I also wrote an article on this, and um, that article has been quite well received on how to prepare the businesses. So there's my two cents worth, if you will. That was an excellent article too, Leanne. Why, thank you. Well, my name is Steve Stelflug. I am like uh, Leanne, I am also a safety consultant. Uh, I also do general business consulting. Most of my background is in uh, heavy industrial construction and oil and gas and power generation in those sectors. So Pedro, you could probably relate to that. Um, yes. A lot of the, um, from what I've been hearing from my clients uh, over the past few weeks since uh, this, the virus has begun to spread here in the United States, uh, people are concerned about, you know, A, what are my responsibilities as an employer? Um, and how do I keep my workforce safe? Those are the two bottom line basic questions. So a lot of my clients have already begun to take some measures, um, limiting travel, that type of thing, air travel in particular. Um, uh, and they are also, uh, they're getting at those action plans and kind of dusting them off and taking a look at them and seeing, okay, what's still relevant and is there anything that I can do to amend this plan? Nice, nice. See, you have a different sector, Stephen, than I work with because I work with predominantly manufacturing companies and, and small to medium-sized businesses in the United States. So I see a different section, and when we discussed this yesterday, you have a lot of wisdom to add in an area I don't, and vice versa. So it's it's good. I appreciate your your input with this because it's valuable. Thank you. I'm looking forward to yours as well. So Miss Leanne, one um, question that's that's been coming about, and and maybe you can answer it. Is this all hype? You know, I think, first of all, it isn't hype and it isn't fake news and it's not the seasonal flu and it isn't something to be afraid of. It is something we need to prepare for personally and in our workforces. Um, and that, there's an important distinction to make because preparedness is not fear-based. It's just good practice. You know, we prepare for the risk of fire by providing fire extinguishers and fire extinguishing equipment, training employees, and having plans. And we should have a plan and education for this event at the workforce level. Um, I think part of our issue with is this hype is that there is a certain demographic um, in the United States that has been told repeatedly that science is fake and science isn't real and government bodies aren't to be tested. And I'm in the rust belt where I encountered this quite a bit. Um, and that is, that is 
bothersome right now because we have to trust science. You know, in our lifetime, there are a few times that the government authorities have told us to have a two-week supply of emergency staples on hand. And we all should have that. And so should we maintain a six-foot perimeter away from people, just as they say, and certain cleaning products and disinfecting should be done, limiting social distance. But yes, those things all come from science, and it is not hype. Pandemics have been prevalent for history. And they come and go. Historically, we have three to four a century. Um, we've had the Spanish flu in 1918. That killed 500,000 Americans. Um, we do not look at this as COVID-19 as being nearly as lethal, but it will be quite um, significant probably in absenteeism and, and sick employees, and that does factor into business. So it's not so much the mortality rate and the big fear of that as much as it is how will this impact if my business has, a say, a 40 to 70% absenteeism. And that statistic, by the way, has been cited by several, several authorities that 40 to 70% of the globe in a year's time will probably experience this and probably be sick. Now, again, that does not mean that everyone's going to be gravely ill. 80% of the infections are mild. But about 14% of those infections aren't. Um, they're more severe. And by severe, that's chest pain, people that need oxygen, people that need hospitalization, maybe they get pneumonia. And there's 6% that are critical cases. And the fatality rate is not evenly dispersed. And I won't even quote the fatality rate because, honestly, we don't have enough data to give that. It has ranged from a scary 5% to a percent. And nobody really knows because we don't have enough testing done. Um, we need to get the test kits in the hands of all the local authorities, and that is still being worked on. And there's a lot of flaws with how that's being done at present, but it, hopefully it will straighten out. But once we have a broader testing spectrum, at that point, we'll know more about the fatality rate. But the fatality rate is, is low. It's just that a lot of people are going to get this. And along with that comes the fact that, um, you know, it is not an evenly dispersed serious illness rate or fatality rate. People 60 and older tend to be much sicker. And this doesn't, unlike H1N1 in 2009, this doesn't affect children nearly as much. Less than 1% of Chinese infections, ages 1 to 9, were part of the statistics. And in ages 10 to 19, there was another 1%. All the rest of those 8,000-plus infections um, that we saw over there are numerous infections that we saw were in other age groups widely dispersed um, among those age groups, but the more severe happen as people aged. And with a aging workforce across the United States and in other parts of the world, that does impact the workforce. Leanne, I did have actually a question that came in with regards to that. Um, I'm in Canada, so I know up here, you know, I have had people self-quarantine, which is really great. I've got a, a couple of people who are doing that. And so one of the questions that has been coming up um, was, you know, 
what is a way, what is the easiest way really to help be keeping our, our works or safe and still be productive? Then maybe you could kick this one off and then Leanne, you could share your thoughts. I think uh, we've touched on a couple of different things. Um, uh, working remotely um, certainly helps if you have if you have an office environment or if your uh, your business is structured that you can have your employees work remotely uh, if they have access to you know computers and, and cell phones etc. Uh, that's a, that's a start. Uh, restricting travel. Um, and then uh, really developing a training plan and making sure that your employees are a trained to be aware that you know hey if I'm sick don't come to work um, or if I do have any symptoms you know maybe go and you know get tested or get checked out uh, so there are a lot of things that we can do a lot in you know along those lines that can help limit the spread now the most recent statistics I saw that this morning um, is that uh, the COVID-19 is now present in 28 states, confirmed. Um, 330 cases so far reported nationwide. Again, these are just, these are current statistics. Uh, 17 deaths in the United States so far, and two most recently uh, reported this morning in Florida, or maybe lately, yesterday. Um, so it's not, it's not, time to panic. It's not time to do any of those things, but it is a time to be take uh, precautions and be prepared. Uh, you know, by comparison, the tornado that went through uh, Tennessee um, uh, earlier in the week, um, you know, they had 25 fatalities. So, you know, this is, it, so far we have only had 17 from the COVID that we know of. Um, so again, it's, you know, we've got time now, you know, a little, the time that we have, we can prepare and um, with proper precautions, we can at least limit, if not, uh, you know, stop this thing in its tracks. And I think it also goes into our, our, our attitude and messaging out to employees. A lot of times in, at least in Canadian culture, I'm not sure if it's the same down in, in the States and what it's like in Europe, but here, you know, when somebody is sick, there's, there's the bias that, oh, the person's not really sick. They just want some time off work. And I think we need oh, to remove yes. that from the, the work culture because in order to, to, to handle something in the workplace as a safety professional, our first go-to should be eliminate. And it's not about putting PPE on people and getting masks. Masks will only help in certain situations, not in all situations. PPE is not our go-to. And so I think we really need to back this up that we need to eliminate by encouraging and motivating people to take that time that they really need. Pedro, did you have another question? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you do the workers need to wear masks? Yeah, you know, talking that? about being you know, was a good segue um, for me tomorrow. So, Miss um, Leanne, do they need to wear masks? Oh, that's such a question. Okay, so first of all, the answer to that is at present, no. Now, that said, healthcare workers 
are different. Healthcare workers absolutely need them because the spread of this is six feet. Typically, when someone sneezes or coughs, those droplets are expelled about six feet into the air. This is not, we don't believe this to be an aerosolized disease. We believe it is spread by droplets, and droplets typically fall within six feet. So, healthcare workers obviously working in close contact do need those masks um, with infected individuals. Also, the CDC is stating that if you are sick to wear a mask, or if you're caring for someone who is is ill, you should wear a mask. Because, you know, if you've got this kind of an illness, you're coughing, you're sneezing, you may not be able to wear a mask at home, but those taking care of you should. And they also should wash their hands frequently, and that's another thing that goes along with this, you know. Hand washing, um, because of the droplet spread, is important. It's probably more important right now than masks, and that is something employers can teach. Any temperature water does not matter according to studies, but it's, and soap does matter. Um, any soap, as long as it's not a foaming soap or a bar soap. Bar soaps tend to hold bacteria, and foamy soap isn't dense enough to break up the lipid membrane on the COVID-19. Um, so washing your hands does two things. It removes the bacteria physically, and it also permeates that membrane, and it removes and kills the COVID-19. Now, that is actually more effective. And in fact, overall, the CDC has stated that hand washing prevents 30% of diarrhea-related illnesses and 20% of respiratory infections. So, you know, that helps a great deal. So teaching your employees more about hand washing and providing alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Because of that membrane on, on the COVID-19, an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that's at least 60% alcohol will permeate that membrane and render it um, incapable of, of contaminating other people. But you have to use it appropriately. So I think employers should focus more on hand washing and cleaning properly than masks, but they definitely need to talk to their employees about that because there's a lot of fear of that. And also, one more thing, I do have a daughter that is immune compromised and she's very ill. She has Crohn's disease, she's very ill. She has asked permission from her employer to wear a mask at work and she's going to because you know she's in close contact with the public and she's a compromised individual. So if you have employees that want to wear them, you know, I think it's okay to let them. I, I think that's perfectly fine. Um, because you don't know their situation, and, and that's all right. But do we need to be providing them for everyone? No. And I, yeah. I did have a question on on that um, employer responsibility that I wanted to ask you, Steve. Um, and, you know, one thing that I, I noticed when I'm working with individuals is that um, other employees can be very harsh, as well as management, can be very opinionated about what should and shouldn't be done and what they are, are and aren't responsible for. And sometimes they get it right, but other times they're kind of off the beat. And I was wanting to see if you could share some clarity around what is the responsibility of our employers? That's a good question. Um, and I get this a lot as employers, as an employer, it is your requirement under federal law to provide a reasonable, safe work area for your employees. So that's, that's an OSHA requirement and it's entirely enforceable. 
Now the question comes into play is, okay, to what degree and, you know, uh, am I judged on, I mean, I can, if I'm on a work site and I know I'm working with a crane, there are concrete things I can do to, in order to make sure that my workforce is safe, the people working around that piece of equipment is safe or properly trained. So this is the same situation. You have to make sure that your workforce is aware that this is a, a possibility. So if you're a retailer, you need to, you know, make sure that your clerks and, you know, the people that are handling money and interacting with the customers on a daily basis know how to stay safe. And that may be uh, requiring them to, you know, wear some type of PPE, latex gloves, uh, for example, especially if they're handling food, make sure that, you know, you've got all of those safe practices in, in place and people are trained to do them. So you're if you don't have an action plan uh, for your business, hey, that's that's a good starting place. You should have one. Um, and if you do, pull it out, take a look at it, and say, okay, well, now my action plan uh, doesn't really address, you know, airborne sicknesses or viruses or whatever. So you need to look at it and say, okay, how can we amend my plan? And then once you do get a written plan you need to make sure that you share that with your workforce. Um, hold training sessions, uh, question and answer sessions, bring in, you know, outside people. If there's, you know, bring in a healthcare provider uh, who can, you know, speak to some of these things. Those are your responsibilities as an employer. Oh, great. Great, Steve. That's, you know, and, and for all the employers out there that'll end up listening to this, you know, this is great knowledge for you to take back to, you know, to the people that are, that are doing it and, and have the scare. And again, you know, the training aspect of it and letting them understand and know, you know, that, that you care as an employer. Um, so Ms. Leanne, uh, at what point, this is one of the questions we got, at what point should I shut my business down or should I? That's an excellent question. Um, I have been telling my clients that they need to constantly monitor their public health authorities. Um, because, you know, if, if we figure that, and I just read this morning um, uh, that a trigger might be a, a death in the community from this because at that point we assume that there are a lot of people that may have been infected. Um, community spread probably will happen. At, at present, we are seeing small pockets of community spread, but not anything certainly like Italy or South Korea or China. But based on what has occurred there, we would anticipate that could be similar, especially in large cities in the United States. So at what point do you shut down? I would say to monitor your local authorities. Um, probably if a school is closed, that might be a good trigger. Um, if your workplace is is developing a significant infection or an infection at this point, it's, you know, shuttering down, cleaning, you know, letting people stay home. Typically two weeks is about the time frame that it takes for quarantine of individuals and symptoms to come and go. Um, but definitely monitor with the local authorities, you know, and I think every business needs a worst case scenario, what to do in this case, which goes exactly with what Stephen just said, 
you know, you need a plan on how to present these things. So it's, I'm kind of looking at this as a triaged event with my clients. Like right now, what are we doing? Limiting social contact, remote work if we can, you know, forbidding travel, um, air travel, you know, high-risk activities, and then, you know, monitoring the community events as they go. And, of course, you know, training workers. And one other thing that employers can do in the immediate, because this can be a problem, we can have a seasonal flu season, and we can also be experiencing this at the same time. So employers should probably be encouraging their employees to get uh, seasonal flu shots, you know, those sorts of things. It won't prevent, obviously, COVID-19, but it will lessen the impact of two illnesses infecting your business at the same time. But as far as shutting it down, you know, hopefully it won't come to that, but definitely heed the, you know, the local authorities. And I believe many of the uh, local public authorities are doing seminars and, you know, they've been very um, boots on the ground in this area. Leanne, if I may just kind of piggyback on some of what you said. Um, one of the things that I, I've been advising my clients, because my clients, many of them are, are larger, uh, they're uh, refineries and power plants and things like that, is, you know, I, I just tell them, you know, if you have a plan, say you are going to be preparing for a strike and, you know, you're going to need certain supplies and you're going to want to um, be able to communicate with your with your management and with your employees at the, uh, at the line level, um, go ahead and look at those plans. And if it's going to require, you know, maybe, uh, you know, closing defenses and, and, you know, sheltering in place, you know, for lack of a better term, um, you need to be prepared to do that. Doesn't mean you have to do that, but you need to be prepared to do that just in case. The last thing you want is your plant, you know, to go down or your factory to be shut down. Um, so look at your workforce, uh, see what what is the, the, the minimum amount of workforce that is required. Um, look at your operating uh, schedules, you know, look at your, your future orders. What are you having to prepare for? Do you have enough supplies uh, on hand to, to continue to operate um, just in case it does go, you know, worst case scenario? And you were talking about the action plan. Now, at what point do people, I wanted to go back to that for one minute and, and find out what point do people need to be, A, um, enacting this action plan, and who exactly should be getting involved in it? Well, they should be already enacting it. Uh, and if you don't have one, you mm. should be developing one real quick. Um, but if you do have it, take it out, look at it, and begin working your action steps on your plan. Uh, talking, training your employees, um, looking at your the things I just talked about, making sure that you have you know enough supplies, equipment on hand to continue to operate your business. Um, if you have opportunities for people to work remotely, um, you know encourage them to do that. And as the employer, you've got you know you can say, look, work from home. Everybody's going to work from home this week, you know, uh, except for you know this staff. So doing those things, but that's, that's all part of you, you know, pulling this action plan together and, and working it out. But in terms of when, not right now should be a good time to start doing it. 
Absolutely. And I'm going to just add in there also that employers, I think, should, um, along with their plan, they should have, you know, definitive methods on how to communicate with workers, you know, if they're triaging or going to a reduced shift um, to kind of minimize the number of call-ins. A a lot of small to medium-sized businesses really don't have a system for this. Or the other thing is how do workers report that they're ill if it becomes a large you know, community event, um, a community spread, how do workers report? And that can just inundate phone lines. So perhaps a separate phone line dedicated to it, online reporting, you know, just so that you can keep that communication going. Um, You know, along with your policies and procedures, I really think that most companies need um, cross-training for essential operations. Um, OSHA recommends three or more employees trained for essential operations, and that's something we should be doing now, particularly since the older demographic seems to be targeted with the more serious illness, and typically our senior employees who have a great deal of responsibility in companies are the ones that fall into that age group that could become more seriously ill. So training other workers, you know, to to do those essential functions is essential right now. Um, that's something I think employers could be doing at this point as well and doing it also in policy and in practice. Speaking of policies um, and, and, you know, you, you, we talked about training, we talked about the action plan, um, you know, how in depth should these policies be in, in regard, should there be a policy made up to, to work remotely or work from home or, you know, quarantine if somebody, I know on a construction site, uh, you know, somebody has the telltale signs uh, of flu-like symptoms, they don't get to work. We're sending them home uh, just to, you know, because again, everybody's touching tooling, everybody's touching and in the same vicinity. Um so to what extent do we do we train on these policies and you know are there policies that need to be made up just for this very instance i think personally i think it depends on the company structure i you know if you the more in depth the company is i think the more in depth the policies might need to be small to medium sized businesses are going to be a bit bogged down you know creating extensive policies but they should at the least have a sick leave policy and they should have, you know, a telecommute policy and they should be um, working along the lines of creating uh, a business continuity plan. Um, you know, a, a lot of companies do not have BCIs and I, I think all of us, I think every one of us involved in this call can can agree with that business continuity plans, not every business has them. And this is a time to, to get that up and going. And those can be very fluid based on the size of the business and, and its extent. Obviously an enterprise client, you know, of mine has a, you know, 30 page business continuity plan, but some of my smaller clients, our business continuity plan is very, is very light, but it does the job. It talks about what to do, essential functions, how many essential functions can we operate remotely, who is in charge of those, how do we alert our, our workers, um, do we have an alternate location if need be, you know, of course that's remote work. Um, 
you know, lists of, of necessary vendors and backup vendors in case supply chains are disrupted. Um, you know, these are the types of things I think companies should have. I did want to just come on, Mike, and um, let people know who are in our audience that if you have any questions, please um, let us know in the chat what your question is. And if you want to come on, Mike, please remember this is an interactive um, community event. Now, Matt actually does have a question. Um, I'm, I try to unmute you, Matt, but it's not working. So if you want to come on mute, okay. Yeah, I was just curious how one would find somebody like Leanne or Steve to actually help in your business. Or, you know, what's the best way to actually find somebody, especially if you're a small or to medium-sized business, to actually find someone to come in and do some training or help with policies or things like that? I am, per I'm, I'm, are you, are you on LinkedIn? Oh, yeah. Matt? Okay. Yeah. So you can find, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I don't have, I took down my website uh, recently, so I don't have a separate standalone website. So I, most of my marketing I do through LinkedIn. Um, so you can feel free to find me there. Leanne is also on LinkedIn as well. Um, is it best yeah. to try to find somebody local or is it kind of a, can you get somebody that will travel or how does that work? Uh, ideally, you might want to find somebody local. Um, ideally, you might want to hire me, but I'm just, just <laughs> <laughs> um, But in terms of your cost and things like that, if you can find somebody local um, and just, I've got a large network. I've got over 1500 people in my network on LinkedIn and a lot of them are EHS personnel. So uh, I, I could be, I'd be happy to help you find somebody in your area. One of the so. things about our, about our eight, about our profession is that we're always very good about referring. If there's something I feel like I can't do or it's outside of my wheelhouse or it's, you know, I don't have the time for it. I refer and like Steven, I have a, a huge number of, of uh, contacts in LinkedIn, and I'm also, like Stephen said, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, you can get somebody local. Um, that might be best, but almost every EHS professional I know travels as well. So, and, and right now, I'm gearing up, and so is Stephen, to do a lot of our work remotely, training remotely. So there are a, a great deal of things that a safety consultant can do for you remotely to help with policies, procedures, training. Um, because we also have our own uh, response to this coronavirus. And that is, you know, we're going to try to offset some of our personal contact if need be. Right now, not so much. But, you know, we can work with the clients even, you know, from a distance. I guess as a follow-up question to that, um, how do you tell the difference between a good health and safety consultant and one that may not be so good, is there like certifications or is there, you know, associations, things like that? Associations yes, and certifications, yes. I'm sorry, Stephen, go ahead, yes. Right, and uh, certificate, certificated uh, prof safety professionals uh, will usually list their credentials on, on their, uh, their profile or their websites. Um, or, you know, in looking at, uh, referrals, I typically don't, I have a problem referring anybody who I don't think is going to be a, 
a good recommendation. So um, going through other people, uh, checking references and, and getting referrals is, you know, you'll get a good response that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Matt. Um, Thank you, Matt. Uh, that, that's, that's great and, and great insight from both Ms. Leanne and, and Mr. Steve uh, on, you know, giving you those, those questions, answer those questions for you. Now, I did also want to kind of go into the next section. What exactly people need to be doing to prepare their workplaces? Leanne, do you want to feel that one? <laughs> well, I think... I, in our conversation yesterday, you had some really good ideas. Okay. Well, I, I am starting with my employers on a number of ways. One is physical controls and modifying the environment. I mean, to give you an example, yesterday, I was at the bank drive-up. I was actually uh, talking to Steve prior to this call we were discussing. And uh, um, the lady ahead of me had her window rolled down, and she grabbed the tube. And as she did at the drive-up bank, she sneezed out the window and all over the tube. And then she <laughs> put it back in the little carrier, and away it went. <clears throat> After I left there, I went to a business and I handed my credit card, and then I signed with my finger on the keypad, and there was no glass partition, no anything. Then I walked into another company and encountered those same types of, you know, paid by credit card. I had a client of mine recently, they had an employee that was sick, and I walked in, and there's a lobby and soft furniture sitting there, and this employee was waiting for a ride home. She was very ill. She did not have COVID-19. She just had flu. But she was sitting in the common waiting room, sneezing, coughing, sneezing, coughing, obviously feverish. Okay, and and these and here everybody that's coming and going in and out of the lobby is exposed to this individual. These are things if you just look around in your community at all the small to medium sized businesses you are in and out of. Get your food at a drive up, you hand your credit card. You know, all of these things are occurring and we can minimize are we, what employers need to start doing right now is looking at public contact and minimizing it. Are there things you can do? Can customers that come into my building, can they pay remote? Can they pay by an app? Um, are there ways that we can minimize public entry or minimize the frequency of that? Um, so what can we do physically to change that? Um, providing supplies. Uh, modifying the work environment, like uh, drive-through windows or physical barriers, um, you know, providing hand sanitizer stations throughout the facility. And that said, again, right now that's a commodity, but we expect that to be, re, you know, out uh, new shipments to be out in the community again. But, you know, there are things that we can do in the physical environment, and that's very similar to what we do with other hazards. We, we try to engineer them away. We remove the hazard. So looking at social interactions, countertops, doorknobs as well, things you can disinfect, computers, credit card machines, break rooms, uh, restrooms, you know, how much disinfection is actually going on of those areas and can we increase that? Um, you know, can we reduce social interactions and members of the public coming in? So those are the types of things I think we can definitely do. Those are hardcore examples that we can we can do. And Stephen, you had a, a a lot of them as well yourself. 
Well, kind of getting back for one second, if we can, to the planning stage, uh, you need to make sure that your plans are site specific. Uh, so mm -hmm. um, if you are a retailer, right, you've got, you've got a retail location, a store, but you may also have a warehouse. Um, so that each one of these facilities needs to have its own site-specific plan. So your, your needs in your warehouse are going to be different from a retail. Uh, like Leanne was saying, um, in a retail setting, you've got direct interaction with the public. Uh, so, and you've got countertops and surfaces and you've got, you know, scanners and, and shelves and things like that that need to be um, sanitized. But it may be different if you're working in the warehouse. Um, there, you know, you're working around forklifts, other machinery um, that, you know, people are getting on and off of all day long. So just think about, uh, like Leanne said, you have, you know, think of wherever you're going to have contact with another person. So those surfaces need, you need to make sure really, you know, that's, that's ground zero of, you know, how to stop the spread of any kind of contagious um, virus or bacteria no different than the flu. And I'd like to piggyback on that a little bit too, is that, you know, often we'll make it like one individual's responsibility to be doing things. And yeah. this really needs to be a collaborative effort that yeah. we're all, you know, um, like the doorknobs and stuff. Like there's, there's no reason why if, if you are going through doorknobs and stuff, you can actually do a Lysol wipe also. Everybody needs to be part of that process of helping to mitigate. Otherwise, it's going to fall through the cracks. Yeah, definitely. And, and to, to piggyback off that, I just went recently went and picked up little travel pouches of Clorox wipes, disinfecting Clorox wipes. And I carry them with me everywhere. So, uh, you know, grocery stores, you go grab a cart, you pull out your little pack and, and 97 cents. So anybody that's listening, go to your local Walmart and find you the travel pack of Clorox wipes and pick up a box. And, and it'll definitely help to, to minimize and mitigate the spread because it's, it, it's, you know, a pandemic and it's only going to get worse before it gets better um, until they find a cure for it. So keeping keeping those those places sanitized and clean, uh, especially if you have children, um, you know they they like to touch and grab on the cart, and you know they they're subjected to it just like uh, anyone else. But just making sure all those surfaces are nice and clean um, prior to to subjecting them to to that hazard. And I, I wanted to also add, um, I guess because I'm in food retail, so this is coming to my mind, is, is you were talking about latex gloves. And a lot of people think like, oh, I put on one pair of latex gloves and I'm good to go for mm. the day. That is not oh. accurate. You need to be changing up your gloves on a continuous basis because they will collect bacteria. And then you're taking that bacteria and you're moving it around to different stations. So, you know, when you're finished with one station, you remove your gloves, you clean the area with the sanitizer, and when you move to another station, you put on a new pair of gloves. You know, I think that's excellent. That's absolutely excellent. I was, I was speaking last night with a friend that is a colleague, and he is working in China. He is not, he's an American citizen, and he is in a manufacturing company um, in the medical field. 
and he's not in Wuhan, but when he goes to work, and this speaks to your earlier statement about uh, this is a collective effort of everyone as well as the gloves, um, I asked him what happens at work because China is being lauded for, although a bit draconian in some of their procedures, effective. When he goes to work, he has a government-approved check in the morning. He walks through disinfectant. They spray down his bags with alcohol. He gets a temperature reading at the time of his arrival. They apply hand sanitizer. Um, he is required to wear an N95 mask and nitrile gloves. They have lunch in two shifts to reduce overcrowding. They take a second temperature check at lunch. Then they use a separate garbage dispenser for used gloves and masks. So I, and then I think that's very important that we separate anything that might be holding germs, like those wipes. This wipes remove the germs, but they may still hold them. So we need to make sure that we discard them, you know, someplace that isn't a common trash can. It's important to train your employees on how to safely remove gloves. Not every, you know, you don't just rip it off and then you got to take the, your, your bare hand and take the other one off. Then you've just, you know, exactly. defeated the purpose. So, um, again, after the training. That kind of opens up um, something else that I wanted to kind of throw in the discussion is there's a lot of times where I'm seeing, I'm noticing safety professionals make this assumption that people, it's common sense that people just ought to know things. And that needs mm. to be debunked. And I will say it again. It wasn't until I was about 35 years old that I learned about health and safety. And so that meant that I worked in the work world for many years, ignorant to the fact that there was health and safety. And so as health and safety professionals, I really want to um, encourage people to be disseminating our knowledge and coming from the standpoint that it's quite likely that this is not top of mind for workers. That's exactly true. I don't think this is intuitive by any means. And a lot of employers, I think all of us have encountered large employers that you think would have already implemented steps and would be aware of, of common health and safety practices, but, but miss that mark. And hence their employees aren't aware. So, yes, as health and safety professionals, I really think we need to lead this with education and training and assistance because it is not intuitive and a great many workers and employers aren't aware of what they need to do. That's exactly right, Leanne. I think um, especially with, uh, among smaller employers, um, they don't have, uh, most companies, small companies don't have a dedicated HSE person. Uh, so it's, okay. it's incumbent upon the business owner or the manager uh, to take the steps and at least bring in some expertise if they don't have it or at least familiarize themselves with uh, proper safety procedures and then train their employees and then, you know, follow it up and make sure that they have been trained um, correctly. Uh, don't just assume that uh, because you've held a 15-minute class that everybody got it. Um, because usually, you know, as we know, it takes something, we have to do something about 30 times in order for us to, you know, really truly understand and get into a habit of doing something. So it takes persistence um, and follow through. And you've really got to take safety seriously in this case. Exactly. And the other thing is, is that we need to keep in mind that we're, you know, people have habits. 
So adults are coming into the workplace. They've got habits they've been doing for sometimes decades. And so what we're actually asking people now to do is, is go against what their habits are. Like I know with my 14-year-old, when, when we're on the, the metro and stuff, um, I'll go to grab the handrail because I'm used to doing that because it's safe when I'm walking down these steep stairs. And he'll be the first one to say, oh, mom, remember, don't grab the handrail. Because in school, they're constantly being reminded about these little things. So there is also that to add into the mix. Right. So you have, you have a choice. You know, we're all taught if you're um, going up or down stairs, you should always hold the handrail, right? It's safe three points of contact. Um, but, you know, in this case, is it what's, is it safer to, to go without holding the handrail or is it safer to go with it? So, you know, again, I think you have to look at the situation. Um, if you're physically able to do it, um, maybe safer not to use the handrail. But if you are not able to do it and you need that stability to hold that handrail, by all means, you may want to, you know, uh, use some PPE. <laughs> and uh, make sure you're protected. I think that's excellent. You know, it's a matter of learning and it's a matter of reframing. And, you know, this is really the first time in most of our lifetimes that we've encountered something like this. You know, we've had the H1N1 and before that we had H1N5 uh, uh, 2007. But, you know, and there's been Zika and there's been other things, but they haven't impacted the workforce and as many people as this. So this is all new for this is new for most of us. It's just reframing reframing how we think, um, and and patience with workers and educating them. I've told worker or employers that they should be having little mini sessions frequently with their employees to answer questions and you know help help diminish their fears and and be transparent with them. And to use quality sites, like the CDC has excellent handouts. They can just print out and they can give to their employees. Uh, the WHO has them as well. There's certainly a lot of good information available, you know, and to give that to the workers. One of those things that hurts us is fake news. And just last night, I had a friend that posted fake news. And it said, and I, it caught my eye right away, it said employers, um, you know, it said the government announced measures that all workforces with 10 or more employees are to have paid mandatory leave to uh, stop the spread of COVID-19. And it talked about school closures. You know, that was fake news. And my friend did not know that. And never clicked on the link, just posted it. And employers, I think, have a valuable spot in this because they can, they can offset what's out there that's going around and they can help be the leaders in the community in this area as they are in other areas. Ms. Leanne, the, the report that you, you pulled your info from, uh, could you give our listeners a, a place where they could possibly go find that report um, in case they're, they're listening and they wanna go look it up themselves? Certainly, um, I can get that over there. The, uh, there's several, actually. I've got, uh, I can provide some links and also a link to the article that I have out there. 
Um, but there's most all of this information has come from the CDC and the WHO. So uh, with the exception of uh, information that I've pulled from like Harvard and that sort of thing, but I can, I can definitely get that out there. Yeah. We'll definitely be able to put them. You just, you know, give us those and we'll be able to put those on our, on our sites on, on, um, Tamara's and, and mine's so that way our listeners can go ahead and click those links and look at it. Uh, same thing for you, Mr. Steve, any articles or any information that you have uh, so that way our, our, our listeners and our viewers who are, are live with us are able to, you know, to go ahead and click those links and find out and spread the word themselves. Uh, so any last thoughts from, from any of y'all in regards to, to what we've talked about thus far and, and kind of wind down and give our listeners a fi- some final thoughts? Well, I think um, it's just, it's imperative at this point that people begin to, if again, I'm going to go back to the stress this, if they don't have an emergency action plan for their business to make sure that they get one. Um, and Leanne's article, of, if you click on that, it's a great outline uh, for a start for an emergency action plan. At least it gives you the ideas and where to go. Um, then make it make sure that your plans are site specific uh, and they're specific to your, your workforce um, and they're actionable, that they're doable. Um, and then it's a matter of uh, getting out there and training your employees and following through and making sure that you know the information that they do receive is accurate. It's not fake news. Uh, um, I'm, you know, Facebook and other social media are, is loaded with, you know, nonsense. So it's hard, you know, uh, make sure that the information that you give your employees is accurate and just be honest. Uh, and again, be working that action plan already. If, uh, if you've got it, get it out and start working it. Right. I, I totally agree with all that. And I do think you know, again, just to reiterate this, preparedness is not panic. And that's the other thing, too. Um, you know, the government is saying that we should have a two-week supply on hand. That's not months of toilet paper or, you know, any of those sorts of things, but two weeks. <laughs> Employers can encourage their employees to have a couple weeks of supplies. And the reason, the rationale for that, and they should be teaching this as well, because I'm finding a lot of people don't understand why two weeks. If you're sick, we don't want you out in the community buying things and getting other people sick. And if there is a large spread in your community, you don't want to be out buying things and risking being sick. So two-week supply at home, that's something employers can be reminding their employees. But again, you know, don't go to Costco and buy 9,000 rolls of toilet paper. (laughs) We probably don't need to do that. You know, it's just teaching your employees preparedness away from work keeps them more prepared on the job too, you know? And if, if, if your budget allows for it, you know, offer a, a gift card to your employees so that they can, they'll have the means to go out and, and get the necessary supplies for them and their families. Um, not, not every business can do that, obviously, and depending on the size of your workforce, but uh, you know, it's at least, even from a management, uh, you know, employer-employee relationship standpoint, it's really a great gesture. And it really probably is not going to cost your business that much money, but it will buy you a lot in terms of employee loyalty, uh, people knowing that, understanding that you're caring for them. Uh, so those kinds of things are, there, there are opportunities out there to, uh, you know, as an employer, 
to you know not only help protect your employees but do you know just do the right thing uh thank you thank you for those you know words of wisdom and and you know last uh thoughts to final thoughts to our listeners and, and again you know this is this is new to us but at the same time it's something that we definitely have to plan for and be able to you know spread the word as best we can uh to as many people as we can so that way the the world becomes a better place um so I, I greatly appreciate it i know tamara she's the one that got this all together so i greatly appreciate you know having me on and um yeah it was it was good talks Oh, I did want to chime in that I did put the, the link to that report that you talked about um, into the Zoom chat. And we're, we're going to also put it on our, um, our podcast websites. Yep. And, oh, you just sent me a fact sheet. I'm going, to send, I'm going to put that into the chat also because we really appreciate both you, Leanne, and Steve taking your time on a Saturday to come and do this safety coffee chat with Pedro and I. Oh, it was a pleasure, and I'm very honored, and it's exciting to be part of your um, entity with us, as you've got a great organization, and you're a leader in this, both of you, so, and Steve, and all of you guys, I'm very honored. Thank you so much. Thank you as well, and um, it's been great being able to put, you know, uh, faces with voices and names and things like that. That's, and always, I always enjoy meeting new people, so I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the Women in Safety podcast. Thank you for clicking the subscribe button and sharing it with others. Make sure to visit us at safetywithpurpose.com for more safety leadership and industry discussions.